Hey there, everybody. You are listening to This Show is So Gay. I'm your host, Ken Schneck. This is episode number 400. Episode number 400. Hey, you want to celebrate? You can go on over to Amazon. My book is available right now on pre-order. The name of it is Seriously, What Am I Doing Here? The Adventures of a Wandering and Wandering Gay Jew. Go pick it up on Amazon right this very second. And also, while you're online, send us an email. Any and all emails get answered. Send them on over to ken at thisshowissogay.com. Stroll on over to thisshowissogay.com to learn all about the fun things happening with our little gay radio show that could. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is This Show Is So Gay. And of course, go on over to that Facebook. Type in This Show Is So Gay. Like us, because we sure as heck like you. We have a jam-packed 400th episode for you with a new guest and a returning guest. We will start with the new guest. Dan Savage is an author, a sex advice columnist, a podcaster, a pundit, an editorial director, a public speaker, and so much more. Savage Love, Dan's sex advice column, first appeared in The Stranger back in 1991 and has since been syndicated all across the country and internationally. He has published a flippin' ton of books, including American Savage, Insights, Slights, and Fights on Faith, Sex, Love, and Politics, Skipping Towards Gomorrah, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Pursuit of Happiness in America, which won the Lambda Literary Award for Nonfiction, and my favorite, The Kid, What Happened When My Boyfriend and I Decided to Get Pregnant, which won the Penn West Award for Creative Nonfiction. In 2010, Dan and his husband, Terry Miller, founded the It Gets Better Project, which has since gathered over 50,000 videos from people all over the world. The corresponding book was a New York Times bestseller, and in 2012, the It Gets Better Project received the Governor's Award at the Creative Arts Emmys. Dan's writing has appeared everywhere. He's been a guest on, you know, all the shows, and his podcast, Savage Lovecast, always sits atop the iTunes charts, as it should. But right this second, he is here with us. Dan Savage, welcome to this show is so gay. Oh my god, I just felt like my life flashed before my eyes. <laughs> I'm exhausted. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this week's episode, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. We have so much ground to cover. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. So with all of those different titles, author, columnist, podcaster, pundit, if we were to back you into a corner, what word do we think best describes what it is that Dan Savage does? There you go. (laughs) And we're done here now, right? Um, You know, I I, I think, I I don't know, like commentator, uh, some people, you know, activists under the age of 30 get annoyed when I am described or describe myself as an activist. But I am and always have been, and I looked at Savage Love when I started doing it as kind of an extension of my activism. For the most part, I was a funny gay monkey, and I let straight people call me faggot to demonstrate that it was uh, intent that made a word hateful, not uh, an arrangement of letters, and that grew out of the queer nation reclaiming hate words thing, which, if you're going to take it to its logical uh, conclusion, means not just us using faggot, dyke, queer, sissy, but them too. And, you know, it's just mostly funny, but because I became this guy that straight people read, this gay guy that straight people read, uh, and it was mostly about them, when I wrote about gay stuff, they would read it out of habit. Yeah. Uh, when I wrote about um, the HIV epidemic uh, and crisis at the time when I started writing the column, people forget how dark and gloomy the early 1990s were when uh, we were, you know, people sometimes think that it was in the 80s when we saw the peak uh, of the deaths uh, from HIV AIDS. Uh, and it was actually in 91, 92, 93, 94, 95 when we saw the peak. 
And so if I'd write about HIV, they would read me. If I wrote about gay adoption, they would read it. And if I wrote about gay marriage, they would read it. Um, all of these straight people who were reading my column in papers all over the country would read that. That they might not read if it was an op-ed by a gay person in, you know, the opinion pages or uh, in the advocate or right. anywhere else. And that was, for me, always kind of uh, got to keep my powder dry, can't hector and lecture them every week. But, you know, every once in a while I can turn the tables on my straight readers and trick them into reading about gay politics or queer politics, queer rights, uh, and, and to think about it more deeply than they would otherwise. So I've always looked at my column, and even the podcast is sort of an extension of it, an opportunity for the kind of activism I like to engage in. What was the dream for little Dan Savage running around the Chicago area? What, what was the big dream? <laughs> the big dream was to uh, have a career in theater. <laughs> I have a theater degree. Um, I'm a show queen. I love musicals. Uh, I love Shakespeare. I directed plays. I had a really successful theater here in Seattle for a few years, which is like having a really successful waffle stand at the bottom of the river. Uh, most people aren't going to ever find out about it. Uh, it's a resume builder. And, yeah. Uh, I like to think, and I'm often told that if I'd done the plays that I did in Seattle and New York, I would have a theater career, but I was kind of marooned here uh, and had to do theater. Now I get my theater bug. Uh, I, I scratch my theater itch by doing live versions of the Savage Lovecast where I get to perform a little bit. But also if you come to the live shows in Seattle or Portland, there are props, there are costumes, there are extras. We just did an Easter show in Portland where we had if you go to Instagram, you can see the pictures, a full-on crucifixion scene with a hot guy on a 10-foot-tall or 12-foot-tall crucifix and Roman soldiers and weeping women. and <laughs> it, was, uh, it was really fun. <laughs> As a gay Jew, that's how I've always imagined it. Yeah, it was, and then we got super sexy. So Nice, uh, nice. Point, my point at that show is the... People always talk. People always try to sex up Christmas. If you, people listen to my podcast, they've heard me insist that Christmas is not sexy. Please stop bending over and taking pictures of your hole in front of a Christmas tree, uh, or putting on a Santa hat and being naked and taking a picture. It's just gross. If you want to appropriate a Christian holiday and sex it up, take Easter. You got a hot guy nailed to a cross. He's flogged by Roman soldiers. Uh, you know he rises from the dead <laughs> there's all sorts of metaphors in there and it's already the fertility holiday with eggs and bunnies um and, and easter's about an adult man in a consensual kind of torture and snuff scene but not really snuff because he comes back from the dead and he knows he's gonna come back from the dead uh, as opposed to a little baby in a manger like nothing is sexy about a little baby in a manger there is actually something kind of objectively sexy about the crucifix I don't know that I've ever struggled to transition on this show, but here I am. So this is exciting. This is very exciting. Ramcast. I support you in your transition. I, Let me just say that. Let's you. get that on the record. I always <laughs> want to be pro-trans in any context. This is a big episode for me. All sorts of announcements. Speaking of the podcast, I can't get past the fact that you have a theme song. How exciting is it to have a theme song? It's great to have a theme song. And it's, I love the organic way that we, we came to have that particular theme song. Uh, we put uh, a call out to our listeners saying we would like we'd like some theme music, and we got that in the mail. Like somebody somebody nice. sent that. To That's us. amazing. And, uh, I think it's great. It was performed by a band called the Popovers. Uh, the singer, uh, unfortunately, very shortly after recording that for us, was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh wow! Um, and, and passed away. Uh, and so, in a way, uh, we like to think of uh, that song as. Um, uh, it's keeping his memory alive for his his friends who are all listeners to the show. Now, I, I am hoping this is true because in my head this is true. In my head, 
you, Dan Savage, write all the descriptions for the episodes that exist on iTunes. Please say that's true. That is not true. Dan! Uh, Hartunian, the producer of the podcast, does that heavy lifting. All right, because there, honestly, you could take all the descriptions from the iTunes episodes and turn them into a book because they're hilarious. I, I went back and looked. One of my favorites was this. In other matters concerning etiquette, it is now officially considered bad form to open your relationship to include your brother. <laughs> yes, Nancy's really good at this. You know, Nancy is the heart and soul of the podcast. Um, I plop my uh, big gay ass down in front of a microphone uh, a couple of times a week. And then Nancy and interview people, and you know, you know how the podcast is put together. And Nancy then knits the whole thing together into a cohesive whole and edits me uh, a little bit here and there to make me sound smarter than I actually am, which I appreciate so much. What, what's your ideal ratio of relationship advice to talking politics? What, what are you shooting for? Oh, my God. You know, it needs to be 80% straight. It needs to be 80% sex and relationships. We have a quota here. Okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, 10, 20% politics or other, uh, in my opinion. It's, it's always, it, it amuses me to know, and this has been going on since 1991 when I started writing the columns. I would yeah. always digress uh, about politics, write about politics. And people invariably would send me letters saying, leave politics alone. Uh, I don't read you. I read you to read about sex. Uh, I'm not reading you to read about politics. I'm not listening to your show for the for politics. You know, I typically get these letters from right wingers who don't like my politics, right? But like the show and like my advice, but don't like my politics. And I always tell them that I will leave sex or I will leave politics alone when politicians leave sex alone. But so long as politicians aren't leaving sex alone, and they aren't, and they never will, I can't leave politics alone, right? We have to talk about the kid, what happened when my boyfriend and I decided to get pregnant. And, and I will get personal for a second. This book came to me at just such an incredible time of my life. And I know you've heard this from other people, but I'm so appreciative for it because even though it was your journey, it so mirrored so many of our journeys out there. That That's feedback that you've received before, correct? Yes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the numbers of times we've had people come up to us you know, on the street or in a restaurant or an airport straight couples and gay couples, but mostly gay couples to tell us they adopted after reading the book. Uh, and the book really helped them see themselves as parents. Uh, it's very gratifying. And then I like to say, Oh my gosh, I'm here from the future to tell you that we're sorry. Cause one day your kid is going to be a teenager. And then Holy hell, hold on. <laughs> I was going to say in, in American Savage, y you write about um, your son coming out as straight. First of all, aside from the brilliant writing, it's just good stuff. Dad, talk, talk to our listeners about that process for you. Well, that was painful for us because, you know, our son told, uh, as I write in the book, told a neighbor that he was straight um, and then asked him not to tell us because he was afraid that we would react badly, which was crazy because yeah. we had always gone out of our way to say you're going to be straight or gay or whatever when you grow up and we will love you and it's irrelevant, it doesn't matter. Even, you know, there were times when he was seven and 11 or so that he told us he was gay and we were like, yeah, maybe not. Just because of odds, uh, you know, when he was, I think it was actually his five, he had an Eric one night and, you know, he, we were cuddling on the couch. I'm always the have to stay up late parent. And he leaned over and said, I'm going to be gay like my daddy when I grow up. And I was like, huh, okay, well, let's make a list of all the couples we know. Right. Um, and we made this long list and, you know, one column was the straight couples, grandma and grandpa and uh, grandpa and grandma and all of our straight friends. Uh, who were paired off, and then all the gay couples we knew. And the straight couple list was, you know, five times as long. So I said, see, Deej, most people are going to be straight when they grow up. And you could be gay, but, you know, odds are 
that you might, you're going to be more likely to be straight, but either way. But so then, you know, when he was 14 or whatever it was, 13, 14, and he told a neighbor that he, a neighbor parent, friend of the family, that he was straight and then sworn to secrecy was really heartbreaking. I think it just goes to show, uh, that parenting is a thing that anybody can screw up on any issue. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you know, you're the gay parent. Like we've been screwed up the, you know, sex advice, talk to him or the birds and the bees talk to him. Because we told him all about sex, and then one day, you know, a few, a few months later, he looked at me and said, you and Daddy have sex for no reason. Two men can't make a baby. And then I was looking at him going, oh, God, right, we left out of the talk about sex, 99.99% of the sex that people have, which is for fun and pleasure, not to make babies. And gay people have sex for the same reason that straight people do. 99.99% of the time. It's only 0.01% of the time that straight people are trying to make a baby. And that's the only kind of sex gay people don't have unless they have opposite sex sex to make a baby. Right. And we left that out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a key piece. It's a key piece. Along with the picture of me and DJ playing with an ancient set of lawn darts that my mother still had in her basement, <laughs> that these are our proudest moments in the parenting area. <laughs> Our son afraid to tell us he's straight. Our, uh, me, of all people, screwing up the sex talk and playing with lawn darts. Nice. Nice. And by the way, you know, we, we gays often imagine our lives as musicals. It's not all of us, though, that get to see our lives on stage as a musical. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that was, that, it, didn't, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't run. It didn't transfer and have a second life, which is too bad. The music was really great, and a lot of the songs were great, uh, but it was a completely disorienting experience to sit there and watch little bits of your life uh, turned into song and dance and musical comedy with, like, terrific actors. Oh, yeah. Uh, and real Broadway stars playing me and Terry and DJ's mom and everything. It was it was really scary. <laughs> we love that Christopher Sieber. Yeah, Christopher Sieber is is awesome. And yeah, I'm still sometimes I still flash back on that thinking that's like so surreal. That's yeah. like something you would see in some crazy movie uh about some writer having to sit through that. It was like the last 10 minutes or 5 minutes of that Christopher Reed's Michael Caine movie where they play a uh, homicidal gay couple. Uh, I can't remember the name of that. And then there's a stage version of it at the end that they're watching. So, wow, weird. A little bit. Like that, except nobody got killed. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's absolutely good stuff. We, we can't have you on without talking about the, the It Gets Better project. As you look back on that whole experience, you know, and it, it's, it's still out there and people are still accessing these videos, well, what are you most proud of? The lives that, it, that we saved, and when I say we, I don't mean me and Terry. I mean everyone who made a video uh, and continues to make and contribute videos yeah. to the Gets Better Project. Um, you said in, when you were reading off my life's work, <laughs> when you were writing my eulogy there, <laughs> that there were 50,000 videos. Uh, that was in the first year. There are hundreds of thousands of videos now, and there it Gets Better Project wow. in, I think, 20 countries around the world. Amazing. And, you know, for some people don't quite even still understand what the project does you know there are queer kids out there who have families that would not take them to a queer youth support group or who have parents who are also bullying them and that they can't turn to for advice or support in getting through this and what they find at the it gets better project aren't just people saying wait and it'll get better and you be passive there and don't do anything don't move a muscle um, and better will come to you what you see when you actually watch the videos are people talking about what they did what they said to their parents, how they extricated themselves from that Mormon fundamentalist compound in Utah, 
how they got their GED and went straight to college and skipped their senior year and got the hell out of this school where they were being pretty brutally bullied, where you see are coping mechanisms and strategies uh, to make it better. And the, the, those, the videos are really useful. Um, you know, we don't raise the next generation of, of queers. They're being raised primarily and overwhelmingly by straight people, some of whom are lovely and very supportive, but many of whom are the opposite. Or a queer kid might have a parent who could be lovely and supportive if the queer kid felt comfortable coming out to them, but it seems too fraught and risky. Maybe that queer kid has heard stories about other queer kids who were thrown out when they came out to their families, or they just don't know how their families will react and they don't want to risk it. And so we have all these adult queers out there in the world who have this knowledge and, and you know this wisdom about how to get through this time, but no way to impart it. No, no way to share it until the It Gets Better Project, I think, created a venue for that. Like, yeah. here's where you can go to say what it is that you did and float that out there into the ether and maybe reach a queer kid who needs, who needs that, who needs to hear what you did to, to make it better so it got better for you. Um, and then you arm them with strategies. And for me, always the most important part of the project is the vision of a future it gives to queer kids who may not be able to envision their own. I've heard from so many queer kids whose parents are being awful, who've watched videos where kids are talking about, you know, adult queer people are talking about when they came out at 15 or 16 and were outed at 15 or 16 and how awful their families were and how their parents were and the terrible things that were said or even done to them. And their parents are sitting there with them in the video, apologizing to them. Wow. Yeah. To hear from a queer kid that they, that they, you know, they're able to love their parents now, not for who they are now, but who, for who they think they're going to be in 10 years, because they've seen who their parents could be in 10 years. And to give queer kids, many of them, the ability to do for their parents what their parents can't do for them right now, which is to love them in hope of who they're going to be in a few years, that's really powerful. I mean, this is life-saving work. Yeah. And it's like mostly, and it's, it's crowdsourced and it's the kind of activism, you know, to circle back to activism, you know, my idea of myself is occasionally an activist. I launched the, it gets better project in my column and on my podcast. And it was my readers who, and listeners who did that, who got the ball rolling and made it explode. Um, it wasn't, you know, within a week I was getting emails from people saying, Oh my God, Dan, have you heard about this? It gets better project and you should support it and talk about it. I'm like, well, clearly you missed last week's column <laughs> where I <laughs> said it. You, know about it. you might want to pick up the paper and listen to the podcast uh, from last week where I launched this thing. Um, but that was a function of my, you know, my readers and listeners trust me. They know I'm not going to Hector and badger them every week. They know that if I ask them to do something, that it's not just a thing that they should do, but a thing they can do. And I think that's a real challenge. That's, what activists have to do. You have to identify, I always call it the doable thing that empowers people to be asked to do something they can do. It doesn't empower people. It doesn't get them into the streets. It doesn't activate them. If you say solve Darfur or solve Syria, they're going right. to go, Oh, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go binge watch crazy ex-girlfriend. Cause I don't think I can solve Darfur. Right. But if you say sit in front of a computer, talk about how it got better for you, what you did, Share your story, illuminate that path for queer kids who are lost right now, uh, and upload it to YouTube, and it'll take 15 minutes. And if enough of us do it, it'll have this enormous impact. And that's, that's good activism, and yeah. that's why the It Gets Better Project exploded.
And speaking of activism, by the way, we, we also like getting something for our dollar. How about that part where you raised a couple dollars there for the sale of all the ITMFA <laughs> merchandise? Yeah, uh, I, I sold ITMFA, which stands for Impeach the Mother Already, uh, buttons and lapel pins in, 19, in 2006 to raise money for the ACLU, which was then fighting George Bush, and for uh, two Senate candidates, Bob Casey running against Rick Santorum, in Pennsylvania, and uh, the guy who ran against uh, Joe Lieberman in Connecticut, uh, and raised twenty grand, and clear, you know, netted twenty grand, ten for the ACLU and five each for those candidates. And so I brought it back under Trump at the suggestion of a reader, uh, and we have sold. Uh, you know, we've now donated, so we've netted uh, for the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, and the International Refugee Assistance Project. Um, Thirty-three thousand dollars each, a hundred thousand dollars. Unbelievable. Three orgs, and we're well on our way to uh, making the next hundred thousand dollar donation to those three orgs. Just selling those T-shirts and pushing that meme. And if any of your listeners would like to get one, uh, go to itmfa.org or impeachthemotherfallready.com. And what's great about it, you know, we have a red hat with itmfa on it. We have black T-shirts with itmfa on it. Buttons, itmfa. Um, little uh, American flag lapel pins with itmfa at the bottom of the flag but are very subtle and tasteful, and you should send them to your member of Congress. Uh, and what's really fun about it, when you wear them out, as I do often, uh, and I hear from people all the whole time, people will ask you, what does ITMFA mean when they see it on your hat in line you know, for coffee in the morning at Starbucks or your coffee shop, and you get to tell them. And it's hilarious, and people laugh, and they want a hat too, and you make a new friend, unless they're... You know, unless you're in a Starbucks in a red state, maybe you make a new enemy. There you go. There you go. Well, because you have been selling all this swag and, and raising much needed money, we wanted on our 400th episode to give you a chance to win a little This Show is So Gay swag. So we put together a short little quiz for you. And, and if you get, I, I think you're going to get all of them right, but if you get two out of four of these multiple choice questions right, you will win a This Show is So Gay magnet. Are you, are you ready to play? I am I am ready. Okay. We have pulled uh, all of this information from what we have now learned are Nancy's descriptions of your podcast, but that's okay because I still think you're going to do okay. You ready? Okay. Oh, my God. I'm excited. I never read them. Great. Even better. We'll still send you a magnet. We're, we're feeling that celebratory. Question number one. On March 19th, 2013, you answered a question on your show about whether what fuels teenage fantasies. Was it A, cowboy porn? B, breastfeeding, or C, Duran Duran videos? C? I'm sorry, the correct answer was actually breastfeeding. I am so excited that I get to do a Duran Duran shout-out on the show, though. That's okay. <laughs> You're going to do fine. You're going to do fine. I'm not worried. Also, if you get any of them right, you will win, or also none of them, and you'll still win. Here we go. Question number two. <laughs> Question number two. On August 30th, 2011, you answered a question from a woman's gay friend with internalized homophobia. The gay friend disparages other gays and comes on to women when he's drunk. In describing that gay friend, did Nancy say, what a jerk, what a creep, or what an I'm going to go with C, what an that sounds like Nancy. We just want you to get one right. The correct answer was what a jerk, but we're going to get there. Ah. We're going to get there. I'm not worried. I am not worried. Okay. Well, I just have to say Nancy is much likelier to say when she's not speaking into a microphone. When we, before we started to record and then called him a jerk. So I like to think I got this half. 
we'll get that half right. I would also like to say that in 400 episodes, it's the first time I've cursed on the air. Very exciting. All right, question number three. On December 11th, this one you're going to get. I'm feeling good about this one. On December 11th, 2012, just when we thought we had heard it all, you, Dan Savage, counseled a woman. She was trying to decide which of her polyamorous partners she should bring to what event. Was it A, her daughter's bat mitzvah, B, her son's bris, or C, her father's funeral? Father's funeral. That is the correct answer. Very good. I think you're going to... Yes. No, I think it... And here's the last one. This one is so random, but on October 18th, 2011, listeners were invited to come hear the tale of who? Was it A, the woman who wasn't being honored as a unicorn, B, the woman who wanks like a toddler, or C, the woman who can only have sex while listening to podcasts? A. The unicorn one. And I did see other unicorn shoutouts. The correct answer for this one was the woman who wanks like a toddler, but I feel like you got the what a jerk one right, so you're a winner on this week's episode, okay, Dan good. Savage. Wanks like a toddler. I, do, I, I smoke a lot of pot, which is legal here in Washington. I'm sure you don't have it wherever you are. Uh, so I'm just curious what Wanks Like a Toddler was. What did she mean by that? You I know, have no idea. I, <laughs> I have okay. no idea, but that's why I pulled it. That's why I pulled it. Tell um, our listeners what exciting things are coming up for you. Oh, my God. Um, well, I'm traveling a bit. I have uh, a couple of speaking gigs coming up in Dallas, in Houston. Uh, if you want to Google me and find me there. And in Spain. Wow. Um, somebody wants to make a long haul trip to, to come hear me speak. Uh, in Ibiza, where I've never been. Um, I'm supposed to be working on a new book, but mostly I'm just turning out podcasts. Savage Love, my column, which is still uh, syndicated in about 100 papers all over North America, and runs in Italian, and it's in, in, in a paper called Internazionale in Italy, which is crazy. Wow. And uh, itmfa.org. These are my passion projects at the moment, in Amazing. addition to my husband. There it is. There it is. Listeners, you can stroll on over to savagelovecast.com to check out the Savage Lovecast. You can, of course, follow Dan on Twitter, which is highly recommended. The handle is FakeDanSavage. You can go see all the great things that are happening over on The Stranger by going to thestranger.com. Dan Savage, I, I got to tell you, and, and I, I know you were uncomfortable with the intro, but you really are one of my heroes. The way that you use your voice in such an authentic way is what we are all striving to do. It is it is. Actually Activism, it is inspired, and, and you are truly making a difference. Well, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure chatting with you. And thank you for that honorary Oscar intro. I appreciated it. Daddy's in the hallway hanging pictures on the wall. Mama's in the kitchen making casseroles for all. My brother came home yesterday from somewhere far away. He doesn't look like I remember as he stares off into space. He must have seen some ugly things out there He just can't seem to say Oh, God bless this mess God bless this mess God bless this mess I got a job in town selling insurance on the phone
Alright folks, and we are back. I promised you at the start of this 400th episode we had one new guest, so that was Dan Savage, and we have one guest returning to us after quite the long absence, which we'll talk about, but first let me introduce him. Nathaniel Frank is an author, a historian, a commentator, an LGBTQ strategist, and so much more. He is currently the director of Columbia Law School's What We Know Project, which we're going to talk all about. He is also widely known for his work helping to end the military military's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy after writing the critically acclaimed book, Unfriendly Fire, How the Gay Ban Undermines the Military and Weakens America, which won the American Library Association's Stonewall Book Award for nonfiction. He is a frequent contributor to Slate, and he has published pieces in the New York Times, New York Magazine, Washington Post. I could list about 46 others. His new book is called Awakening, How Gays and Lesbians Brought Marriage Equality to America. It is the first full-scale history of the marriage equality movement in the United States. It just hit the shelves, but first, he's going to talk about it with us. Nathaniel, welcome back to The Show is So Gay. Thank you, Ken. Great to be here. If Dan is the new guest, does that make me the old guest? It makes you the experienced returning guest, yes. See how we tweak that? <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Well done. <laughs> well, speaking of returning, you, you were last on the show, I, I kid you not, June 24th, 2009, and, and in one of the most overwhelming and ridiculous questions I've ever asked in the history of the show, as a historian, how do you even begin to wrap your mind around the just colossal change that has happened in that span of time? It's pretty tough. It's pretty tough to absorb it, you know, professionally, personally, uh, in, in any way. But we have seen change in leaps and bounds just in those, what was that, seven years, eight years? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you would have thought it then when we were speaking. There was some frustration within the community at the time about what some of us were saying was a slow roll by the Obama administration to lift Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But as President Obama promised, they did get it done. We all got it done. And um, they, uh, they signed legislation on hate crimes, and marriage equality got done in that period. And um, some of us have then turned to lifting the transgender ban in the military, which is nearly complete. Uh, so it's an enormous amount, and at the same time, as a historian, I take the long view, and I always like to point out that although the change seemed, and in, in many cases was, so rapid during that period, if you graphed it, it would be slow change for decades, uh, and then much faster change toward those recent years. So those recent years, that change, as, as quick as it seemed, uh, was, of course, built on many, many years of struggling through when it was not happening so quickly, but was laying the groundwork. Yeah. I would imagine that one of the challenges in being a historian in a digital age is, is exactly what you just said. How do we talk about history in a longer form than, say, 140 characters and, and get people's attention? Because there's so much more nuance than the headlines that we see that have happened in, again, say, just the past eight years since you were last on the show. Right, I couldn't agree more. Those challenges in the digital age for a historian, for someone who uh, who tends to think, I don't know, think and write sometimes more slowly and needs time to dwell on things. When I was writing this book on marriage equality, I sometimes had to just tune out the news. And I thought, well, that's ironic because this is the story that I'm chronicling in the book, but, and I happen to be living it in real time, but I just can't, I can't get to it right now. I mean, I didn't literally tune it out, but I really couldn't absorb everything that was going on, especially 
given that we have 50 states and uh, a lot of change, we may talk about this later, uh, occurs or occurred state by state. So that was the way I dealt with it sometimes was, was just by tuning it out so that I could keep the big picture in mind and then come back to it as a historian, even though I was doing you know history from six months ago, 12 months ago, which um, in graduate school we, we wouldn't have called history. Right. <laughs> Oh, remember graduate school? Those were good times. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Well, let's talk a little bit about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. As you look back on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I I think that we could just do right exactly the same thing and do the broad stroke and say, great, it was solved. There's there's still issues with LGBTQ people serving in the military and and, it's still not a settled policy, right? Well, in the military, the changes have been remarkably smooth and remarkably thorough. It may be, look, you know, going backwards, that what you're referring to is that the transgender ban, which was separate from Don't Ask, Don't Tell, right. and separate from the statutory the, the ban in law um, of gay, lesbian, and bisexual people, that occurred more recently, and partly because it occurred more recently, it's been, you know, it's just taken a year to implement because which is not very much time, really, if you think right. about implementing a change like that in an enormous institution like the U.S. military. There are and will be ongoing challenges at the level of enforcement and ensuring that there isn't discrimination at the individual level and certainly for getting the support and health care intervention that transgender people need. That will take some time and can be expected to be imperfect. But, you know, you, I guess you... You do distinguish between law and policy on the one hand and attitudes and behaviors and hearts and minds on the other hand. Obviously, they go together in important ways. But I I will say that I'm very pleased with the progress policy-wise in the military and in terms of the, you know, one of the reasons that some of us got behind the military issue uh, for fighting for LGBT equality is that it's a a tip of the spear way to make change. It's a yeah. giant bureaucratic institution, and when it decides to make change, either because it wants to or needs to, it it really does it in a top-down way that can be pretty thorough. And I think we have seen that, and that has made the changes more durable even under the Trump administration. But I don't want to be Pollyanna and say that we don't have to remain vigilant about about ensuring that that continues as we go forward. We're totally photoshopping you into a Pollyanna picture now. We're going to see how that works out for folks. That's I, something I'll put on my website. Great, great. That's it's done, done. I, I would imagine you remember exactly where you were when you found out that that policy was changing. Don't ask, don't tell. I so do. I, I do. I was on the phone at um at uh, our house upstate in upstate New York um, on an old landline because we didn't have Wi-Fi, and I think I was on the phone with my husband, he wasn't my husband just yet, um, getting the play-by-play, which sounds so remarkably old-fashioned. It's kind of wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful. You'll always have that. You'll always have that. Let's talk about the What We Know Project. As a college professor, I appreciate this more than I can possibly tell you. For, for our listeners who don't know about this project, tell us all about it. Sure. And in, an age, in the age of Trump and in the age of alternative facts, figuring out what we know and publicizing it is more important than ever, though it's a project that I started before I had any idea that we would live under a Trump regime. So it was inspired in part by my work at the Palm Center on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and I am also consulting with the Palm Center now on the Transgender Military Initiative. Um, and that was, is, Palm Center is a, is a small think tank that 
believe strongly in the importance of advancing public policy based on facts, uh, that quaint old notion. And the What We Know Project brings together scholarly research on LGBT public policy issues and puts it in one place where journalists and policymakers and the public and LGBT people and other researchers can go to see what the consensus is on an issue like same-sex parenting. So that was the first research piece that we did when we started back in 2014, 2015. And we aggregated basically a meta-analysis, or like a meta-analysis, a literature review, of all of the relevant peer-reviewed research on a topic. And we found that about 75 out of 79 studies on this topic concluded that having an LGBT parent does not harm children, Yeah, which is something that most of us knew. Right. But in the face of social conservatives and religious conservatives attacking same-sex parenting, it became critical to put down, I would say on paper, because I'm old-fashioned, but put out on the web what we truly know about this topic, so that when people really want to find out what the consensus is, they don't have to just trust a talking point by a liberal or pro-gay organization, they can actually look at the research themselves. And yet, since most people don't have the time to read through 75 or 80 studies, you can sort of get the overview by seeing the thumbnails, um, which is how we designed the, the site, so that it basically looks like the Apple newsstand where you can see all the studies and then you can look at their abstracts and in some cases look at the actual text. Uh, and then we put a, a little overview at the top so that if you don't have time to do that, you get the gist. And folks can access that if you go to whatweknow.info. You can find that information. I want to talk about another one of those uh, compilations of research. If there is one of our listeners out there who is thinking, well, conversion therapy, that, that you know doesn't do any harm. First of all, I don't know what they're doing listening to our show, and they haven't listened to a thing we've said in 10 years. But indeed, there are studies out there that show, no, this actually doesn't change sexual orientation, and it can actually cause harm. Right. So that's another one of the pieces that we did is the question of what does the scholarly research actually say about whether conversion therapy can alter sexual orientation without causing harm. And for the moment, we, we focus on sexual orientation rather than gender identity just because um, there's more research. There's a sort of overwhelming research on the orientation piece. And the research on gender identity and expression is more nascent, but is, to me, still very clear. You, can't, you cannot change sexual orientation or gender identity through, well, through anything, right. in particular through talk therapy. So we identified 47 peer-reviewed studies that met our criteria for adding to what we know about conversion therapy and divided them into a few different categories. And a dozen or more fell into the category of empirical research showing that conversion therapy is ineffective at best and harmful at worst. And it's, again, not surprising anyone who has experienced it, um, any any LGBT person who has gone through a period of his or her life trying to change sexual orientation or gender identity has known this for a yeah. while. But now there's empirical research making it clear for those who had any doubts. We love empirical research. It's a good thing. If my students are listening, that's a good thing. I would like to remind you of that. Like it, yeah. Yes, it's right there on my syllabus. Occasionally they read it. Again, listeners, we are here with Nathaniel Frank, author, historian. Let's, let's bring people up to date, awakening how gays and lesbians brought marriage equality to America. First of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You just had your book launched like an hour and a half ago. How are you feeling? 
Uh, I'm 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 coming back to life. <laughs> I did need a I did need a nap after that, but yes, it was a, it was a fun experience, and you, you know you should have a book launch. If there you, you have go. A book, you deserve a launch. I love it. Why do we need this book? Well, you know, when I started the book and when I finished it, all but the epilogue, I didn't know that we would be living under a Trump presidency. Right. And still, I thought it was very important for people to study activism and study social change. I've always thought that. And as I saw the gains that we made in marriage equality in particular, I thought, you know, this LGBT movement is is very effective and in many ways is a model of successful social change. And sometimes when you look at activism or think about activism or engage in activism, you don't necessarily know what's going to have an impact. You may know what's instinctively important or what is fun or enjoyable, but you don't always have metrics on this stuff. And in a sense, the world is the laboratory here. And the way the LGBT movement, or the marriage equality movement in particular within the LGBT movement, kind of a sub-movement, achieved marriage equality was a remarkable story. And then when I woke up on November 9th, well, to be honest, I never went to sleep. But when I walked the dog at 3 in the morning on November 9th, trying to take in what had happened, yeah. I realized that this book was even more timely and more important than I thought, because now we were back in battle. Not that the battle was ever over, but um, it was a sort of success story when I envisioned it. And now it's a critical story of urgency that we understand how social change occurs. So that was the... Yeah, that's the, the the short history of the from the genesis of the book to to where it landed and why I think it's so important now. You know, one of the things that we often talk about when when we talk about marriage equality is the work differentiating the work between individuals and organizations. And I know that that you delved pretty deeply into that because you had individuals who were who were leading charges and and certainly people like Edie Windsor, and then you had organizations who who were getting more involved. Talk to us about that balance between doing this activism work individuals doing it and organizations doing it? Right. That's a great question and, and an important distinction, although a distinction that gets fuzzy right away, as, as it should. The way I look at it is that the LGBT movement used a classic insider-outsider game in order to make its advances. And it's something, you know, it's not always by design. Sometimes that is the product of very genuine strategic disagreements. But it's also just the product of division of labor. There are individuals who make change and and small organizations and often those are the ones who are outsiders to the not only to society in general but to the larger movement the LGBT movement or the black civil rights movement or the women's movement whatever it is they're often the ones who put an idea that seems outlandish to the world they put it on the map and it gets laughed out of seminar rooms and courtrooms alike for some time and eventually the larger movement and then the larger culture catches on and recognizes how important it is. So I I talk a lot about that inside-outside game and the importance of understanding how ideas that once seem unimaginable become mainstream and become respectable, which is sort of a controversial word in the LGBT movement because many people didn't want to be respectable. But I try to make the case that it's very important to understand how you need to bring ideas from 
the margins of the culture into the center of the culture. And sometimes that requires compromise and pragmatism along the way, and it certainly requires understanding that sometimes delicate balance between individuals and organizations and between small, scrappy, outsider organizations um, and more established organizations. Or sometimes the the, the outsider organizations, the way I use the word rather broadly, are not small and scrappy. Sometimes right. they're well-funded and, and very strategic, but they're coming in with new ideas to an area that they hadn't been before. And, um, and that exchange of ideas and sometimes even the conflict that that breeds between different constituencies within a movement can be very healthy and very important, even if it's sometimes painful. Yeah. Talk to us about, you know, there was a lot of criticism after after marriage equality had been achieved and, and was the law of the land that, that there was a perception of a drop-off in activism, right? We had achieved this thing, and, and notably uh, the disbanding of Empire State Pride Agenda, and, and just some support, a feeling that some support had dropped off because we've accomplished what we needed to accomplish. From your vantage point, how, how did you see, how, how do you wrap your mind around those perceptions? Well, I think there is some truth to them. As you mentioned, the disbanding of some major organizations, which caught some of us by surprise. On the one hand, I think there was long a concern about the prospect of this happening as we made advances. And there were some organizations that were single-issue organizations, and it was sort of admirable that they didn't just stick around in a bureaucratic way in order to continue, right. like Love Makes a Family right. in Connecticut, which was you know, dedicated to achieving marriage, and that's what it did. Um, Freedom to Marry, the organization started by Evan Wolfson, which was a national organization dedicated to marriage, also disbanded after it had helped achieve marriage. Um, that's exactly what it was meant to do, and that freed up resources and personnel to do other important things. Um, so I think there's a danger of letting your guard down. There's something very unfortunate um, and unfair about well-researched organizations staffed by people who have relative privilege within the LGBT movement saying, well, we got the laws that I care about, um, and even if there are still uh, disproportionately high rates of suicidality and depression and anxiety and job discrimination among some of our more vulnerable populations within the LGBT movement, youth and transgender people and people of color, um, see you later. We've gotten, we've gotten these laws achieved. And that's, that's obviously not right, in my view. On the other hand, I have to say that I've been heartened by how strong the LGBT movement has remained and how uh, people did stick around to continue the battle. In some cases, the, the Trump election obviously created a sudden and shocking new urgency. Right. But in other cases, people people just they stuck around. Um, and um, I'll, I'll give you an example: the, the the question of transgender military service. There were some people who were upset with activists who were working on "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" because transgender service was not included as a priority. And there were a couple reasons for that. Um, one of them was that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a policy that didn't address transgender issues and was a statute. Right. And so that was something that had to be ad- addressed separately. But another was strategic. And you talk about incremental change. It can sometimes be very important, even when you want the whole shebang, 
to go for one thing first and then using the strength of that victory go for the next and i was heartened by the fact that uh the palm center sort of reconstituted its focus and said okay we've helped lift don't ask don't tell now we're going to devote our resources to lifting the transgender ban and i think many in the movement did that and we weren't all sure if that would happen but it did happen and now the transgender ban is almost gone there it is there it is you wrote a beautiful piece for slate the quiet allure of the rainbow flag in that piece you said this after a period of inner evolution i suppose the rainbow grew on me just as it was designed to from a mostly unconscious symbol of hopeful escape to one of pride liberation and eventually belonging it's great stuff nathaniel thank you so people have to go check that out Let's let's end on some advice for all of our listeners. I, I'm so tempted to ask the question that I'm sure you get, you know, with annoying consistency of why is it important that we know this history? But we really do have to remind people, why is it important that we know this history? Well, there's an old platitude, which I think I actually made fun of someone for using in my book, so don't call me a hypocrite, <laughs> which is, you know, if you don't know your history, it could repeat itself. Yeah. There's some history we want to repeat itself because it's good history. And then there are things that we absolutely can never forget because we have to make sure it never happens again. And I think it's been so alarming, but also rousing and inspiring to see how things that we never thought could happen again seem to be either happening or on the brink of happening in terms of the targeting of minorities and vulnerable communities and ignoring aspects of democracy and egalitarianism that we thought were settled concepts in American culture. Uh, we need to be able to distinguish between, between what is fair and just and sound policy and practice and what isn't, and we need to understand how we get from one to the other. And the way to do that is by studying your history. And you are helping us do that. Listeners, this is what we need you to do. Stroll on over to NathanielFrank.com, and you can learn all about him and all the work that he has done. You must, of course, go to WhatWeKnow.info, because there's some really important, important research there. And right this very second, go to wherever fine books are sold and pick up a copy of Awakening, How Gays and Lesbians Brought Marriage Equality to America. Nathaniel, you're doing pretty darn important work. Can we not let another eight years go by? Let's do that. I'll try to not let another eight years go by before I write another book. <laughs> Even if I do, we can find a reason for me to come back on the show and chit-chat. I always enjoy it. Huge congratulations on the book, and please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much, Ken. I went all the way to Paris To forget your Long since past Statues of lovers Every place I went all across the continent To relieve this restless love I walked through the ruins Icons of glory smashed by the bombs from above So we must love While these moments are still called today 
take part in the pain of this passion play stretching all youth as we must until we all right folks and we are back well not a ton of time left on this week's 400th episode I'm just going to keep saying that because it's so nutty, 400th episode, but a little bit of time. So let's get to a few of the latest LGBTQ news stories that are out there. Our news comes to you this week from Pink News. That's pinknews.co.uk. Some good news and some really not good news from Washington, D.C. this week. 240 members of Congress have put their weight behind a bill to outlaw anti-LGBT discrimination in the United States. There are currently no federal level protections against discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender in the U.S. That, of course, means that it is indeed legal to fire people or deny them services for being gay in more than 30 states due to just various state-level protections. The Democrats have repeatedly tried to add LGBT rights protections to existing anti-discrimination civil rights laws, but Republicans in Congress have blocked both the Equality Act and its predecessor, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. The Democrats this week staged a high-profile launch for the Equality Act legislation, though hopes are not high that the legislation will pass given the Republican majorities in both houses. So Democrats trying again to add protections that we currently don't have. Well, that's not looking too good with this current administration or the current majority of Republicans. This current administration, everybody is keeping their eyes open because word is that the White House is expected to have an anti-LGBT and religious liberty executive order signed this week. According to reports by Politico, conservative leaders have been invited to the White House on that day. It is expected that the anti anti-LGBT executive order, which the White House just last month said it was still working on, will be signed in a ceremony later this week. According to the Politico website, two senior administration officials have confirmed this, although one warned that as of Tuesday of this week, the order had not been finalized. A draft executive order, if you'll recall, leaked from inside the White House back in March. And according to the draft, it would actively permit religious discrimination against LGBT people. The leaked order was written to protect people who discriminate based on the belief that marriage is or should be recognized as the union of one man and one woman, male and female, referred to an individual's immutable biological sex as objectively determined by anatomy at birth. So with everything going on in this country, with the economy with the education system that desperately needs attention, with our relationships, our very troubled relationships with other countries, with all of that going on, this is what the White House is choosing to spend time on. This is how they are looking to score points with some conservative factions of this country. What an absolute waste. What an absolute waste. And of course, a slap in the face, and it'll be tons of lawsuits to come, and what a waste of time at the end of the day. So there you go. Speaking of lawsuits, this story is unbelievable. A man is suing a funeral home because it refused to take his husband's body all because he was gay. 
Robert Husky died in May of 2016 due to complications related to a heart condition, but after funeral arrangements were made by his nephew when it became clear he was going to die, the Picayune Funeral Home in Mississippi refused to pick up Husky's body. His widower, Jack Zawadski, said on the day of Husky's death, the funeral home found out that he had been married to a man and refused to carry out its duties. The couple were together for 52 years and were married. Zawadzki said this in a statement, I felt as if all the air had been knocked out of me. Bob was my life, and we had always felt so welcome in this community. And then, at a moment of such personal pain and loss, to have someone do what they did to me, to us, to Bob, I just couldn't believe it. No one should be put through what we were put through. End quote. And, you know, this week, if the Trump White House does indeed sign this executive order, totally legal. They can absolutely do this. Any place of business, they can just say, I'm sorry, we have a sincerely held religious belief, we cannot assist you. Slap in the face, waste of time. In other religious news, Methodists could open disciplinary proceedings against a married lesbian bishop that could see her stripped of her role. San Francisco pastor Karen Olavito was elected unanimously to serve as a bishop by the UMC's Western jurisdiction last year in spite of official rules which ban LGBT ministers from serving openly. Bishop Olavito is married to her partner of 17 years, angering conservatives within the church who strongly opposed equal marriage. The bishop has already been consecrated to lead the 400 churches in her jurisdiction, but Methodists from deep south states filed an objection, alleging she is ineligible for the role. We will most certainly keep our eyes on that story. And finally, following up on a story that we talked about last week, you don't want to mess with people in Wyoming. I would encourage you not to mess with them because you cross them at your own peril. Last week, as we covered on the show, Republican Congressman Mike Enzi told a group of school children that men in dresses are asking for homophobic assaults. He told the students, just to remind you, at Gray Bull High School, quote, we always say that in Wyoming you can be just about anything you want to be as long as you don't push it in somebody's face. I know a guy who wears a tutu and goes to bars on Friday night and is always surprised that he gets in fights. He said those comments to a group of high school kids and the residents of Wyoming, well, they're striking back. They have started the hashtag live and let tutu. That's hashtag live and let tutu. You must go look it up. There are just people taking pictures all over the place in tutus, including in bars. They've even used the Wyoming flag and doctored it up a little bit. And they put a tutu on the buffalo. I love creative activism. It just highlights, you know, look, people say really ridiculous things and we don't let them get away with it. So we're going to highlight how ridiculous these things our representative have said. Live and let tutu. Hashtag live and let tutu. And that, my friends, is it for this 400th episode of this show is so gay. Our huge thanks to Dan Savage. Our huge thanks to Nathaniel Frank. They are both doing such incredible things to use their voice to make a difference. And that's what we want you to do for our next 400 episodes. You get out there. Go use your voice the way you know how to use it to make a difference for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, for all of our allies out there. And while you're out there making a difference, while you're out there using your voice, please remember, why be gay when you can be so gay?